Hey, really good friends. This episode contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more detailed descriptions and take care of yourself. Hello. Hello and welcome to Historically Really Good Friends, a queer history podcast. I'm Rachel Craig and I'm Jared Femblow. Howdy, hey. Howdy ho. What's up? Not too much. I really liked that little switcheroony of yeah. the intro there. Yeah, we that really... just like just came to me. I liked mm-hmm. it. I just wanted to play off of it, went a little western with it. Yeah, we it felt love right. it. It really did. You had like body movement in there a little bit. Yeah, a little a little wiggle. Yeah, I was just um thinking the other day about potentially so a little insight into our recordings, Jared and I can see one another, but you obviously can't see us. But I was like, hmm, maybe we can grab more listeners if everyone could see how nice and cute we were. But then... When does I, that happen? Well, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> I Quickly, the thought turned into, mm-hmm. yeah, but we record this very late. Um, on like weeknights usually on the east coast and i am like already pajamaed yeah up yeah. and so um you can't see us ever we will live as a mystery no. and maybe that mystery uh, we're like westerners we're cowboys and cowgirls we're cows mm-hmm. we're cows maybe. we're cow people mm-hmm. so we can be whatever you want us to be and maybe that will yeah. be the mystery yeah 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 i mean i did post us on our Instagram at historically really. There are photos of us. Um, if you want to ruin that mystery of what we look yes. like, it will take the magic away. Yeah. Do you think our voices and faces match what people uh, picture? Um, I hope not because <laughs> I don't like my voice. But I guess maybe they do because I think both I sound and look like a child. Mm. So. I just feel like I don't sound very articulate, but maybe I present as articulate if that's possible. I don't know. Okay, I disagree with you. I think you do, but oh, thank you very much. Um, I'm 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 swiftly moving past the that, that comment that you made. Mm-hmm. I think you sound like you look like you'd sound. You sound like you'd look. Mm-hmm. Yes. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I think it matches. It yeah. they match is what I'm trying to say. But I'm not objective, maybe. I No, I used to disagree with that, and I used to hate hearing my own voice. But the more that I've heard it, especially editing these podcasts, like I, I do think I sound how I look, and I look how I sound. Yes, and people really like the way that um, you sound. Feedback that I've gotten is that you have a very calming voice, unlike mine, which apparently can be heard from offices through closed doors. Mm-hmm. Um, in offices down the hall from my own. Thank you for the compliment <laughs> to whoever gave that. And I would say you should be louder. You should. You think? Yeah, you I know should what? just embrace it? Yeah, fuck what people are saying. Whatever they're saying, do the opposite. That's my advice. Okay, that sounds good. You know, it, it is a, a benefit to me that mm-hmm. I work primarily in like a therapist office Mm-hmm. And so there are always like the sound machines on so that you can't hear, like so that everything remains oh. confidential. 
So it's a benefit, but also then what happens is, because I think what I'm saying is just the most important thing that must be heard, I talk louder. Right. So all it has done is um, made me become louder. And then all this podcast has done is encouraged that even more. So I think I do have to commit to the the loud voice at this point. Commit to the act. Embrace it. Yeah, Yeah, may as well. It's all we can do. So... You started Pose, right? I did start Pose. There was a, a funny, what I thought was a kind of funny text message exchange between the two of us. I was so excited to text Jared that I started Pose. And within, I'm going to say 15 minutes, I sent a follow-up text that just said crying. So the first <laughs> text said, I started Pose. The next text within 15 minutes said, crying. Um, And I think that really does accurately sum up my pose experience so far. It is fantastic, but I've cried quite a few times. Speaking of crying, though, I just finished Mm -hmm. watching Heartstopper on Netflix. Have you heard of it? Have you seen it? No. So it's a new show. It's queer. It's it's like a high school romance based on a YA novel. Oh, Um, no. And it's like... Yeah, it's eight episodes, and it it I I cried, and you know me, I don't I don't cry at a lot of things. I'm not a crier. No, it I I don't. End of the first episode, tears, and end of the eighth episode, tears. In between, tears. Like I, it was so good. It was a little hard to watch Um, because it's emotional, or because it's cringy because it's high school. No, No, like. It was hard to watch because there was like a realization that that's not something that I had and that I wasn't able oh. to experience. So it was really nice to see and like recognize that there is a new generation that's able to watch this and relate to it because they're having mm-hmm. experiences in high school and being like open and being in relationships or just like figuring themselves out. Like it's just a really sweet story and it has a lot of ups and downs. I don't want to spoil anything, um, but it definitely just was a hard but like very satisfying watch as a queer person. So I recommend it really highly. It's like eight episodes. The episodes are like 20 What's or 30 minutes. What's the name again? Heartstopper. Heartstopper. Okay. Yeah. I will definitely have to like get in the headspace for for that, but I value your TV recommendations so highly. Almost every TV show or song that you've recommended to me in the past year i'll say has been absolutely fantastic thank you um and i plug to everyone so i will certainly add that to my list maybe you'll get me back into netflix because yeah i've not been into it so much but yeah if you have netflix check it out and And especially like support queer works especially ones that um i don't know it like they kind of break the trope of queer narratives but at the same time they're following tropes of like romantic stories it's just it's so nice and it's just like i don't know watching i was kind of like finally like a story Mm -hmm. like i've seen so many high school romance stories that are not queer and it just feels like uh finally now we have we have this it just it yeah. feels so good. It feels amazing. That does. That sounds wonderful. There's also, I think I might have talked about it in a previous podcast episode, but there's a YouTuber I really like. If you're big into YouTube, the channel name is T Noir, but she does um, a video, like a commentary video on queer representations in media and how like not all representation is created equal and that like 
there's a lot of queer representation that's mainly just focused on queer pain, especially within like the high school, young Mm -hmm. adult sort Mm -hmm. of genre. And so it does sound like that would be really nice break from that exclusive representation of queerness for like young adults, especially. Yeah, I mean, even adults in general, I feel like everybody Mm -hmm. can relate to the story and Olivia Coleman is in it. She is like a very minor character, but like she, if that says anything to you, like it's, it's just go, go watch it, please. Like after you listen to this, if you have the time, go check it out, go start it today. It's, it's everything. All right. I'm there. I will definitely cry. I mean, I like haven't seen it. I don't know. I only mm-hmm. know from your description, but I could tell you right now I will cry. doesn't Good. take much, but I'll do it. Good love the commitment we have our first listener story we've we've been asking everyone to write in to us and um send us your stories about you know coming out and being queer and queer people or figures in your life and write us a a little tiny little baby story and so my friend summer wrote in to us so stick around to the end of this episode and i'm gonna read that story then Thank you, Summer. We cannot wait. Yeah, thank you, Summer. And other than that, why don't we just get into this week's stories? Let's do it. I think you're up first this time. Yes, ma'am. Yes, I am. This week, I'm going to be talking to you about Wiwa, the Lahmana and Zuni princess. Okay. So the sources that I'm going to be using this week are the Partnership with Native American Summary on the Zuni Pueblo, the National Women's History Museum Profile on Wiwa by Mariana Brandman, a video about Wiwa by the PBS Learning Media, the video Behind the Doodle, celebrating the late Wiwa from Google Doodle, Wiwa's Wikipedia page, and the Britannica entry on Zuni people. So I just want to kind of throw out a few little disclaimers before I start, because a lot of the sources that I'm using, almost all of them, are sources by white individuals, and there are not a lot of Zuni or Native sources themselves. Like, there's not a lot by the actual tribe. There was a man who is white and queer by the name of Will Roscoe, and he actually did a lot of research and compiling of Wiwa's story, and it seems like this research is generally accepted amongst the Zuni people, but I still wish there was, you know, more authentic Zuni sources and Zuni voices. So I tried to use what I could find, but to kind of create this whole story about Wiwa, you know, I I did have to use a lot of sources from white anthropologists, but I am using what I what I can get. Mm -hmm. Second thing is I couldn't find any definitive pronouns that Wiwa used, but it seems like the pronouns differ between sources, especially between those of Zuni people and white anthropologists. So for the purpose of this story, I'm going to use they, them pronouns to stay consistent. Uh, The third thing was, I'm going to be talking about this term, Lahmana, and I've watched videos where Zuni people have pronounced it, and it sounds like there's a few different pronunciations, like Plahmana or Zahmana, but Lahmana seems to kind of just be this, like, also generally accepted So I'm going to be using Lahmana for this story. If someone out there listening is Zuni and um, uh, knows better, uh, please correct me. Let me know. I 
would be glad to take that correction. Okay, appreciate the disclaimers. And yeah, maybe if anybody else has other info too. Um, I know like Google, at least as like a jumping off point for Jared and I, is usually where we get started. But taking that with a grain of salt for your story, Jared, for sure. And if anybody, like you said, has some more sources that maybe they want to share, please please yeah. So let's first talk about the Zuni Pueblo. A Pueblo is a North American Indian settlement on the southwestern U.S., especially one consisting of multi-storied adobe houses built by the Pueblo people. So it's basically a city or a town, and the Zuni Pueblo is located in modern-day New Mexico, close to the Arizona state border. The Zuni people, or the Ashui in their native language, and their ancestors have been at the site for somewhere around 2,000 to 4,000 years, and the current-day Pueblo is about 724 square miles and has over 9,000 residents. Mm. So just like a brief little history about the Zuni people and the Pueblo in general, just to kind of put us in the mind frame of who they are and, and what they've been through. In the 1500s, Zuni is the first Pueblo discovered and visited by Spanish explorers, and it's rumored to be one of the seven cities of gold. So when conquistadors return a year later looking to pan this gold, they're met by hostile Zuni people. And from this encounter, a war ensues. And by 1680, the Zuni and other Pueblo tribes defeat the Spanish through the Pueblo Rebellion. The tribes retained their independence until 1691, when the Spanish reconquered the area. And so by the mid-1800s, the Zuni, who are now crop growers and sheep herders, have become the wealthiest and largest political force in the region, but not long after, white colonizers and the Transcontinental Railroad encroach on the Zuni land, and in the end, the Zuni lose most of their land. The Britannica entry on the Zuni people notes, quote, Since the early 19th century, the Zuni have been known for making silver and turquoise jewelry, baskets, beadwork, animal fetishes, meaning objects of spiritual significance and mm-hmm. that kind of like hold a power to protect the owner, and pottery, all of very high quality. Many Zuni have chosen to adopt only some parts of modern American life and to maintain much of their traditional culture. So that's a little bit about the Zuni people. Now let's talk about Wiwa. So Wiwa is born into the Zuni tribe around 1849, assigned male at birth, and is born at a time when the tribe is able to freely practice their religious customs and ceremonies. Their mother is a part of the Badger clan, and their father is part of the Dogwood people. The first year of Wiwa's life is the first year white Americans had their first interactions with the Zuni tribe. And during this first year of contact, the Zuni agree to ally with the colonists in some territorial battles against their traditional rivals, the Navajo and Apache. Mm, I'm willing to bet that doesn't pan out in the way they think it might. (laughs) That's a good hunch. (laughs) So as an infant, Wiwa is orphaned as a result of the smallpox epidemic brought to the land by white colonists. So Wiwa and their brother are actually adopted by a paternal aunt. And Wiwa remains a member of their mother's tribal clan and also retains ceremonial ties to their father's clan. And their adoptive family is apparently wealthy and influential among the Zuni tribe. 
a little bit of a left turn here in the story, but okay. in the Zuni tradition and history, as like in many other indigenous cultures, there's a third gender that exists between the binary of man and woman. And for the Zuni people, this third gender is called Lahmana. Many people may recognize this third gender identity by the modern umbrella term two-spirit, which is kind of used as a general term for all indigenous third genders. Mm -hmm. It's sometimes seen in the term LGBTQIA2+, which refers to a person who identifies as having both a masculine and feminine spirit and is used differently to describe sexual, gender, and or spiritual identity. But it's important to note that many indigenous communities and languages that have this third gender have their own word for it. And for mm -hmm. the Zuni people, it's Lahmana. And Zuni children as early as three or four can be recognized as Lahmana. And these individuals usually are assigned male at birth, but then take on social and ceremonial roles generally performed by women. They hold positions of honor in the community and perform the ceremonial, economic, and social roles of both men and women. So these roles can include name givers, mediators, matchmakers, warriors, healers, and artists. So they are very high up in the community and very well respected. Mm -hmm. It's already so interesting to me to hear about. I think the differences in cultures that have always sort of acknowledged and recognized genders outside of the binary, because at least in like American, like modern American culture, it's something that we don't. I would say still recognize and kind of have built systems around the gender binary and like yeah. mainly in like all other binaries essentially. Right. And so it's interesting to me to learn about a culture that was built around differing identities from the start and like how that impacts the entire, the whole systems yeah. of being within indigenous populations and culture. Right. It's completely different from our own and mm -hmm. we see these cultures thriving and succeeding and then as soon as right. you know these european colonialist people and ideas come in then everything it just it all goes to shit so around the age of 12 wiwa is included in religious ceremonies for zuni boys although a few years later the tribe notices wiwa's lahmana traits and hands over their training to female relatives so they can be guided in a more traditionally feminine way under this female relative guidance wiwa learns critical skills for domestic tasks such as how to grind and prepare corn and oversee the household amongst other skills Wiwa also studies for years with a kinswoman to master the elements of pottery, many of which hold ceremonial importance. They also learn how to weave and become incredibly skilled at the art, learning different looms in order to make blankets, belts, and sashes. And so, while pottery in the society is associated with women and as a feminine task, weaving is associated with the men and connected to a masculine task. Wiwa will become known by many for their talents as a craftsperson, especially because it's during a period when these Pueblo textiles and especially Zuni designs and styles are flourishing. So Wiwa is incredibly instrumental in helping indigenous arts and cultures become more widely recognized by selling their pottery and textiles. Mm -hmm. Not only is this a profitable move for Wiwa, which has not been done by anybody before, but it also raises the status of native art in the eyes of white collectors. 
Yeah, definitely. I would say even, and I don't know this for sure, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine much of what we think of New Mexico now probably is based in indigenous art and architecture. Yeah. So I think it probably had really lasting impacts. I've never been to New Mexico, but like the image that I conjure in my head right. of New Mexico. Has I'm, indigenous influence. Yeah, it's like very much grounded in indigenous art. Right, and culture and, and life. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this is happening throughout much of Wewa's life. They're learning these crafts of both men and women. They're becoming increasingly skilled. So this is what the public will really come to know about them and like what will be documented publicly. Wewa would also become a part of the Kachina Society, performing ritual mass dances and would join the Medicine Society, both of which would help Wewa learn the history, rituals, lore, and ceremony of the Zuni people. Taking a step back in our timeline a little bit, in 1864, around the age of 15, the Zuni people and American colonists win a victory over the Navajo, expelling the Navajo from the land that they're on. Members of Wewa's tribe, including their family, move into abandoned Zuni land, and I'm not 100% sure if it's the same land that the Navajo were driven from or if they migrated into Zuni land left behind by those who did go to the Navajo land, but either way, Wewa's family moves and they all become farmers. Okay. Wewa holds this occupation of a farmer, something that is considered a traditionally male occupation, despite being seen heavily by their community as more feminine. Right. As the 1870s roll around, so like six years later, going into this decade, Wewa and their family are still farming. Wewa's adoptive mother is growing older, so Wewa and their older sister begin to take on more of the household duties, something that is more traditionally feminine. So we Mm -hmm. see this kind of like ebb and flow of masculine and feminine just consistently throughout Wewa's life. Right. And it's important to note here that because the Zuni live under threat of Navajo and Apache raids, they rely heavily on diplomacy with the American troops for security, but they remain culturally and socially isolated from Americans. So they are still living with these cultures and these practices and ceremonies while still being in contact with Americans and having this kind of security. Right. That is until the 1870s when Anglo and Hispanic herders begin to encroach on the Zuni land and Protestant missionaries arrive determined to convert the Zuni to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Nope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this move from the missionaries was a part of the peace policy of Grant administration, which was instead of the indigenous tribes being moved onto reservations, they would attempt to assimilate them into American society by indoctrination of Christian religion. It's mm, so interesting to me because... I thought the whole point, it's so interesting for me for so many reasons, but like, for those of you who don't know, the entire point of America was for those people to flee religious persecution. So it's really ironic to me that now to be American somehow, even though you are on stolen land, people Mm -hmm. have to be Christian. Ay, ay, ay. Please tell me more of the story. Land back. Like, yeah, exactly. So at this point, Wewa is in their 20s to 30s. 
the Zuni people, mind you, are not looking to be converted to Christianity. They have their own religion, ceremonies, cultures, they're and like language. Set. They're they're very much good to go. They did not ask. Thank you right. very much. They've been good for like centuries and centuries and centuries. Mm-hmm. But the white colonists move into the area anyway. And a Presbyterian minister, Taylor F. Ely, who is also a medical doctor, his family, which consists of a wife and two young daughters, and an assistant teacher are quote-unquote assigned to Wewa's tribe, but very little comes from their time at the newly built school in the area. Wewa helps the wife as a domestic worker with household work and making clothes, and I believe also works at the school for a little bit. The mission, though, changes the religious mindset of the Zuni people very little, and the school has very minimal impact. So the Protestant missionaries basically pack up and leave in 1881. They go, they try their hand. Wewa is very welcoming, is very amicable, but no one's giving in to this Christianity bullshit. Right. They're like, right. which is also interesting to me because it's like, in my interpretation, a lot of the like guys of missionaries is we're here to help you, but also right. we will immediately stop helping you if we notice like a consistent like continued resistance to conversion which makes sense like that people don't want to convert to your religion and then you're like so just kidding we don't want to help you (laughs) haha goodbye which is very much might be a reason why they pack up in 1881 Mm -hmm. although a few years before this departure in 1879 the u.s's new bureau of ethnology sends anthropologist matilda cox stevenson and her husband expedition leader james stevenson to collect and then i wrote read as steel question mark artifacts and record (laughs) the zuni people oh yeah right definitely steel right (laughs) Collect implies some kind of willingness or like consent in this exchange, right. which I imagine is not happening. Can't can't have been this the situation. No, a little bit of a power imbalance there to have implied Absolutely. any type of consent in this collection process. And so Wewa and Matilda meet while both working with Mrs. Ely, the minister's wife. And Matilda notes that Wewa is very friendly with outsiders and willing to learn English. She's impressed with Wewa's extensive knowledge of Zuni history and culture, describing Wewa as, quote, the most intelligent person in the Pueblo. She then goes on to record that Wewa's, quote, strong character made his word law among both men and women with whom he associated, though his wrath was dreaded by men as well as women. He was loved by all children to whom he was ever kind end quote. And Matilda actually has an interesting relationship with Wewa because later years, that quote comes from a journal, but later years, Matilda then writes in her journal something along the lines of like, I'm going to start using she to describe Mm -hmm. my really good friend Wewa because I can't see her as anything else. Mm -hmm. So there is like this definite respect there between Matilda and Wewa. It definitely is apparent, but I just think in the beginning, white anthropologists were completely unsure of of what they were experiencing. Yeah, it definitely sounds a little bit like a shocking to Matilda friendship developed out of what was once maybe like a spectacle or like something to be researched rather than like a human connection or relationship and then like eventually morphed into that which is right. wonderful and it th- that original quote though also sounds 
like a glowing review of a person. I don't think there's right. one person that could say such nice things about me, like collectively as a whole. Sure. The icky part is that it's sort of emphasis on who would have guessed it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's the, the circumstances weird part. too under yeah. this relationship forming and where it's about to go. It's all mm. a little icky. So through learning English, Wiwa is able to cultivate this sort of friendship with Matilda that we were just talking about, who would return to the Pueblo to visit Wiwa again in 1881, 84, 86, 91, 92, 95, and 96. So Matilda is coming back and forth between the Pueblo of Zuni and Washington, D.C. She's making these trips. Like, this is a, a long trip back then. This isn't, you know, she's not hopping on a plane she, like she's really making the trek out right. to come see and learn about Wiwa. so it does seem like we were saying like a real genuine thing during her first trip in 1879 matilda introduces commercial chemical soap to Wiwa, teaching them how to wash clothes using this product and so Wiwa begins to wash clothes for the members of the protestant mission earning a silver dollar for the service every time and seeing the expansion of white colonizers in nearby lands, Wiwa sees the opportunity to make this settler's currency and also introduce themselves to those in power and form amicable relationships. It's sort of like this exposure therapy. The more you see something foreign or different, the less foreign or different it becomes. And Wiwa, now in almost constant contact with white colonists, is always playing the part of a delegate, basically, being the mm-hmm. representative for their tribe and people. And so it does seem like they are trying to make relationships and and build connections between the tribe and white people to kind of like right. ease things and make sure that they have a sense of protection, like they've okay. always done. right. But this is an incredibly dangerous move for Wiwa, as white colonizers often see this third gender as aberrant sexuality or gender identity as evidence of savagery, and eliminating this would civilize the indigenous tribes. This is what they believe. So even though it is dangerous, Wiwa moves to Fort Wingate, a military station in New Mexico, and washes for the soldiers and captains' families, and then from there expands outside of the fort, washing for other white colonizers as well. In 1885, Wiwa, now being somewhere around the age of like 36 to 40, the Stevensons invite Wiwa back to Washington, D.C. with them and bring them there for about six months. The intention from the Stevensons is to foster cultural exchange and generate interest into further anthropological research. And while there does seem to be this genuine friendship and connection with the Stevensons, there also feels to be this sort of like show and tell aspect of bringing Wiwa back with them. Because at the same time as this trip, White settlers, soldiers, and government agents are invading and decimating lands west of the Mississippi. Mm -hmm. These white men actively are forcing Native people into schools and now onto reservations and slaughtering those who would not cooperate. So it's like while they're bringing Wiwa to the nation's capital to be this like shiny example of what a quote civilized indigenous person is, it's like the backdrop is the entire indigenous population of North America is getting absolutely just like terrorized, yeah. you know? So it's like, they're it's... Ba- it's it's like dystopian. It's like showing off we win the capital mm-hmm. be like, look, we're friends with indigenous native Americans. Right. But then in the background, they're killing them. It's like, it's so wild. 
it feels very much like a trap and it also feels like you know for people who are listening that when you hear about like tokenizing like this is kind of a really good example of that of using someone even if it seems genuine with that specific relationship there's like kind of an ulterior motive and like using them for a specific purpose to like highlight a difference like Mm -hmm. they're it doesn't seem like they're bringing them to the capital as like fun visit with friends it's to demonstrate all of the things that you were talking about and so that coupled with this idea when people say you know along with tokenizing it's not someone's job to teach you about Mm -hmm. themselves and their culture this is another like this is reminiscent to me of that it's just a little icky it's not how people behave with one another who they respect (laughs) right and like as much as i want to believe that the stevensons truly are bringing Wewa back for all good purposes especially at this time i just i truly do not believe it right like i think it can be and it probably was both at the same time of right you you can have the feeling of deep in your heart doing something for a specific reason and know very well of your intention. And for them, it may have been a positive, like good intention, but still that can be coupled with the fact that Mm -hmm. your intention was not well executed and did not work out the way that it seemed. And maybe you're just like a little tone deaf or like naive to the actual situation of what's going on and why what you did was wrong. (laughs) Right. Especially in 1885 that awareness is not there. (laughs) So despite this backdrop and the political happenings of the time, it seems like Wewa is able to make a favorable impression in the nation's capital. Most people here believe Wewa to be a cisgender woman, so their visit garners a lot of attention as women rarely, if ever, participate in delegations. Wewa is taken to parties, mingling with Washington, D.C.'s high society, even meeting President Grover Cleveland and his new wife slash not sister, Frances, gifting the couple a handcrafted wedding gift. Wow. Newspapers cover Wewa's visit closely, reporting on their activities with great interest, dubbing them the, quote, Zuni Indian princess. On the trip, Wewa is invited by Matilda to assist in ethnographic research for the Smithsonian Museum in which Wewa explains the significance of Zuni artifacts, poses for photos to document Zuni weaving, and donates pottery to the museum's collection. And some sources say that Matilda commissions this pottery, and other ones say that it was, um, like, gifted to the museum. Mm, Sounds suspicious, you know? Sounds very suspicious. I would say um, definitely remaining a little bit suspicious about um, curated pieces by mm-hmm. by Matilda Stevenson. <laughs> Wewa was noted, and I'm paraphrasing here from the notes of another minister, that they are an expert weaver with a sharp and delicate eye for color values. Wewa also acts as an ambassador for the Zuni tribe, working to get Zuni voices heard and starting conversations to bridge the gap to help white people understand that they're not just Native Americans, but they're people. And although Wewa makes a strong positive impression on politicians in the high society of Washington, D.C., and although their visit makes the Zuni tribe the most well-known tribe of the 1880s, the National Women's History Museum writes, quote, 
name recognition did not stop the U.S. Office of Indian Affairs from extending its policies of assimilation to the Zuni and other Pueblo Indians in the years following Wiwa's return. Mm. Such policies furthered the dismantling of tribal cultures, including pressure to abandon the recognition of Lahmana individuals and the absorption of Indians into Anglo society, end quote. And it's a long quote, but I think it sums up perfectly the detrimental effect the U.S. government had on the dismantling of indigenous cultures and practices. Many indigenous people who defied these Eastern, meaning European or Eurocentric norms, were driven underground by colonizers, and by doing so, the passing down of this gender tradition was stopped and forgotten about, which is what many current-day indigenous peoples are trying to restore. Wiwa is also arrested sometime post this DC visit, along with five other Zuni leaders accused of witchcraft and for being Lahmana, and serves a month in prison. I'm sorry, what year would this have been? Um, somewhere in like the early 1890s. So what like, do, we're like still doing witchcraft, like. It's it's exhausting. This I know. story is one big ay ay ay. And after their wrongful imprisonment, Wiwa goes back to their community and continues to perform ceremonies, weaving, and making pottery. They continue to be vocal about their land, traditions, and community against white colonizers. And in 1896, around the age of 49, Wiwa passes from heart complications, and their early death is considered a calamity amongst Zuni people. It does seem, though, like Matilda and Wiwa were friends up until Wiwa's passing, because Matilda later recalls Wiwa's final words saying, quote, Love all my people. Protect them. They are your children. You are their mother. And then, fast forward to about the 1970s and 1980s, long after gender traditions began to be erased, LGBTQ plus indigenous people set out to rediscover their own history. They learn about Wiwa, they're able to gain a new sense of pride, empowerment, and cultural connection. By the 1990s, there's an upswing in indigenous people across tribes labeling themselves as two-spirit, a term that may never have been claimed if it wasn't for queer indigenous pioneers like Wiwa. And so that is the story of Wiwa, the Lahmana and Zuni princess. Oh, thank you so much for telling me that story. It definitely, I think, had a predictable turn of events, Mm -hmm. but I think it was really wonderful to see the impact and like the ability to sort of continue on with the tradition and and how we're seeing that today and that you know it is really really important or at least I find that it is that many indigenous traditions are preserved mm-hmm. and that we hopefully ourselves begin to adopt them within our own systems while of course like giving land back and all of those things too but I think it's really wonderful that indigenous people were able to sort of discover and rediscover this history as as part of their history and knowing that it existed and is still impactful is really great to hear yeah and there's there like I, I don't want my story to come off as like 
WeWa passes and then everything nowadays everything's good like there was Mm -hmm. a good I, I don't like 80 years where the traditions of third genders and you know sexual identity and spiritual identity within indigenous tribes was completely suppressed and was not allowed and was completely forgotten so there has been a lot of work that has been done by the community in order to rediscover these things and like you're saying preserve them there's a lot Mm -hmm. of work that needs to be done by white people to kind of support these people especially in the queer community to support indigenous queer people and um, support indigenous communities just in general so there is a lot of work to be done Um, we would just kind of was a bright light that tirelessly worked to be who they were and um, to ensure the perseverance and success and longevity of their tribe, their people. And without them, we might not have what we have now. So thank you, Weewa. And yeah. Yeah, thank you. And definitely, like Jared mentioned in the beginning, I see a lot of things even in, you know, allied spaces um, regarding two-spirit identities and things like that, um, which is not the most accurate, um, as Jared was talking about too. So definitely do your research when um, and if you can, and be sure to help, I think, correct those misunderstandings when they occur in spaces like predominantly white and non-Indigenous spaces. So yeah, that was really great to learn about. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so I am very happy to bring this person to our podcast this week, Um, and I thank you for telling such an informative story. I hope this story is kind of equally as informative because I think it focuses on a part of history or queer history specifically that is maybe often left out of a conversation, and that's because it's very closely tied to religion and, you know, like devout religion within the queer community. So today I'm going to be telling you about Mariam Katun Mulkara. Okay, so truthfully, I'm excited about this one too, because I think because this is maybe a less talked about or confronted subject, she really took some searching. Like I I intentionally wanted to find someone like sort of like Miriam this week. And I really like this was a concerted effort. And her story is similar to those we've talked about before, sort of. And like there would be no reason that she um, wouldn't be more present, I think, mm-hmm. except for the time period things took place maybe or the fact that it's closely tied to religion. But I'm very excited to tell um, maybe a little bit about her story today. Great. So in kind of continuing with our trend, full disclosure, I might mess up on some of the names. I did like, just like Jared, I look up a lot of, I look up, not a lot of, I look up all of these pronunciations, but for this one specifically, it takes place mainly in Iran. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of the words are Arabic. Mm -hmm. I have some experience speaking Arabic, but not very much. It hasn't been in a while. And for context too, the Arabic alphabet is different. So there are like letters that don't exist in our- Perfect. 
in in English and so my like voice just doesn't make them so I'm doing my best out here but I know that it's far from perfect (laughs) so I am doing what I can do and it is out of absolute respect so that out of the way our sources for this week include Wussy Magazine A Testament to the Existence of Devout Queer People of Faith by Mel Paisley Making Queer History, the Happy Ending series entitled Mariam Khatun Mulkara, A Fatwa for Freedom by Robert Tate for The Guardian, and the Wikipedia page for Mariam Khatun Mulkara. Okay, so our story today begins in pre-revolutionary Iran, and I'll try to incorporate as much history as I can along the way, but considering this is like middle eastern history it's like very nuanced and Mm -hmm. is like the most history that exists so i'll include what i can and like pre and post iran the iranian revolution is like a very large personal interest to me so i can give you some book recommendations i can include them if you get lost which i'm sure you may but i kind of encourage you to continue reading all that to say, our story begins in 1950. Maryam Khatun Mulkara was born in the northwest corner of Iran along the Caspian Sea, which doesn't that sound magical? Yeah, doesn't it, does. it sound like, like the Caspian Sea? Just sounds mystical and charming. Yeah, it sounds very lovely. I think it's just like a big lake, but like it sounds okay. the it, name just It's mm. um mentioned in Poor Unfortunate Souls. When Ursula is making her spell. Yeah. I didn't know that. She says something, 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 Caspian Sea. Okay. Well, even more. It's like really very mystical, I guess. I've only... Okay. It doesn't matter. So (laughs) anyway, we're in Iran. We're along the Caspian Sea. Um, And if you remember from some previous episodes, we talked about a few definitions. So Miriam was born and assigned the biological sex male at birth but from here on out i refer to her with she her pronouns and using the name Maryam. she was born into a devout muslim family where she was navigating some early signs of gender dysphoria in her own words Maryam told the independent quote every night i prayed for a miracle but in the morning i looked at my body and it hadn't happened quietly Maryam would dress in her mother's clothes or put on makeup in hiding By the time she was in her 20s, Miriam had begun working at a health center. It was here that she met a post-confirmation surgery doctor who became a good friend of hers. Until meeting him, Miriam did not realize that there were options for trans people. So because she was like becoming friends with this trans man and he was really talking about his experiences, she it really opened her eyes and opened a lot of doors for her. That's gotta be so hard. Being born into a religious family where you are taught that someone's looking out for you and watching out for you and you're wishing for one thing and you think, if only this one thing was different, I would be happy and I just Mm want to be different in this way or this way or this way. And morning after morning, you're waking up and it's not happening and it's not happening. It's like, what must be going through her mind? Like, yeah. Why is why are my prayers not being answered? Like what's happening? What's mm-hmm. going on? So it just I can't imagine the daily pain and frustration and body dysphoria she must be going through. And it's also it's that which is really was really difficult I think to read about because you know for me it's imagining what that would be day in and day out. But what was interesting is Miriam talked about how 
before meeting this the person at the health clinic who was kind Mm -hmm. of ended up being like a a mentor to her she talked about how she just assumed she would sort of have to live as a closeted gay man for the rest of her life not realizing that like her identity sort of like had a word and Mm -hmm. had something else and that felt more right for her she didn't realize that that's what she was experiencing until someone kind of opened her eyes to the fact that that's like completely valid thing to be experiencing. Yeah. Um, And so that wasn't until she was in her twenties. And so, you know, imagining having to have your whole life Mm -hmm. up until like 25, just coming to the realization that you'll have to live as something and someone that you don't want Mm -hmm. is really hard. Mm Mm-hmm. But now she kind of has this validation for her identity and resources available to her from medical professionals. So she's set on seeking support for hormone therapy and confirmation surgeries for herself. She comes out to her parents, kind of telling them about her identity, and they were less than positive about this revelation. So though trans identities were certainly marginalized in 1970s Iran, which is kind of where we're at, there were still available doctors at the time who were willing to provide hormone therapies and surgeries, which Hmm. was a little shocking for me to learn. I think it's helpful if you kind of shift away from this current picture we have of, Hmm. I think, all Middle Eastern countries and Iran um, to sort of separate where we are. But this was not an out-of-the-question option for Miriam, we could say at this time. Okay. But her parents didn't fully accept this. And so Miriam was disappointed, but acknowledged her parents' disapproval because it was very rooted in religion. And Miriam was still practicing, like she was, she was still identified as Muslim and it was really important to her. So she kind of took her parents' advice and she began hormone therapy, but didn't yet seek any type of surgery. Instead, she decided to seek approval from the Ayatollah at the time for an expert opinion on identity specifically within the Islamic faith. So an Ayatollah is a Shiite religious leader, like clergyman, and at this time they had a really big influence over Iranian life and sort of even more so as the story progresses and in the coming years during and after the Iranian revolution. So the opinions of Ayatollahs are very, very impactful for Muslims because it really gives them insight into what's approved within the faith. And so for Miriam, this was really important. She was fiercely dedicated to her faith. And so because of this, she wasn't really ready to give up one or the other. She didn't want to sacrifice her Islamic principles or her identity. And so she kind of started this search for a way to reconcile the two. At the time, she sought guidance from Ayatollah Bebahani, who performed an ishtikara, which as a non-religious person, I sort of am interested in this practice. I find it pretty cool. He essentially sort of opens the Quran to a random page almost, because then this selection is said to contain divine guidance. Like it's sort of what you needed at the time. So the page opens and the guidance interpreted from this page and these texts talk about the Virgin Miriam, which 
for any Christians out there familiar with the story of Virgin Mary, it's the same thing. See, there are so many similarities. Let's just have world peace now. Mm -hmm. There are no nuances left. It's let's do that. Anyway, this text suggested to the Ayatollah that Miriam would sort of always be looking for the belief and validation of others. So he kind of comes to this conclusion with this divine guidance and says, okay, you're always really going to be looking for validation. That's what it says. But if you want, you can get like a second opinion, which I find very funny to be like the solution to your problem is your problem yeah like it's just like you need to stop seeking validation from others but if you'd like you can go seek validation from others and see if they say the same thing (laughs) right (laughs) i do find that just like a little ironic but she does get this advice and seeks this sort of second opinion from Ayatollah Khomeini, who becomes Iran's first supreme leader. Many people may know that name. He's a very controversial figure, but he plays a, he's the main character. And he's one of the main characters in our story today. Okay, enter stage left. Yes, truly. Like this, this includes, we've got everything today. So Miriam is sort of living this quiet, meek life in Iran's capital city of Tehran, and she begins writing to Ayatollah Khomeini. In the 1970s, he was living in exile in Iraq. So she was looking for spiritual guidance and approval still for a gender confirmation surgery and seemingly for her identity kind of more broadly. She really just wanted to know that this was okay in her religion. In this pursuit, she traveled to Paris in 1978, a year before the Iranian revolution, to continue to try to track down the Ayatollah yet again while he was still kind of in exile. Still, she had no luck, and Miriam was seemingly disheartened, knowing that Khomeini had previously confronted the issue of trans identities with very little nuance, kind of like publicly dismissing the need for hormones and surgery, and just advocating people live as women or men. So he was just kind of like, I don't see what the problem is. Just, you don't need to go through any other sort of confirmation procedures. If you want to be a woman, just sort of do it. And so this was not very satisfying to people, um, as you can imagine, because as a cis person, think about just like living in a body that doesn't feel like yours and being told to just like put on makeup. Like it, it doesn't really make it better. Fundamentally doesn't change your situation. So she's nervous that this is going to be his continued response. She's not going to get the answer that she's looking for, but she still continues on. But in 1979, the Iranian revolution begins, which was spearheaded by Ayatollah Khomeini. So this all kind of happened. She's still searching for him, but he's like a little busy changing the fundamental culture of Iran. So like, oops, that's on the back burner. Okay. Lot on his plate. Uh, Yeah, he's got a lot going on. The revolution was very tied to the nature of religion as a fundamental part of the government process. The revolution created the devout and strict Islamic picture many of us have of Iran today. So before this, hijabs and other modest dress were not enforced, and Iran, especially Tehran, were on par progressive-wise, if not more progressive than their Western counterparts. So that's why I said earlier in the story, try not to think of it the way you may be picturing it now, because it was really an entirely different country pre-revolution. And not that there's 
necessarily anything wrong with those still today who want to live more fundamentally or dress like wearing the hijabs or more modestly. But what changed is the freedom to sort of make that choice. So this is all kind of going on. This is now the backdrop of where we are. Miriam was determined to hear Khomeini's opinion by way of a fatwa, which is a formal ruling by a legal scholar or high authority. In this case, Khomeini was both a monumental religious leader and a political revolutionary. So like he's checking all the boxes that she needs to kind of like get this very formal approval. Right. Like if anybody has the ability to give a final say, it is him. Like he's the one to see out. Yeah. Yeah. He's like green flag. Mm-hmm. all rockets ahead whatever the expression is like his clearance is is extremely important and sure. gives like this interpretation of islamic law that could be hugely impactful for trans people across iran in the midst of this like fundamentalist resurgence so mm-hmm. that's what's really interesting about this that how many spearheads this fundamentalist regime and it's really negative and by all accounts he He's not a great, he's like not a great person. Thumbs down. Yeah. So like, I don't, I don't, it's hard to encapsulate that. I'm not trying to give that impression. So what's interesting, him being a main character in this is the sort of impact that he has for trans rights in Iran at the time that we are in a hugely religious fundamentalist regime. So juxtaposing those two doesn't seem like they would have a very happy ending. Kind of along with all of that, the time, this time in Iran saw internal conflict, growing tensions with Iraq, and increasing violence towards those in the queer community and sex workers. So just as I was talking about, like, this is not a time of peace and prosperity. Miriam herself was a victim of public beatings and jail time for wearing women's clothes and at times was forced to take male hormones in an attempt to, quote unquote, correct her original hormone treatments. Mm -hmm. So she's now growing back facial hair and is forced to bind her chest in order to appear more masculine. She returns to working in the medical field, helping soldiers who have been injured in the war with Iraq. So, sorry, so you're saying that she's binding her chest so at this point she's undergone the surgery and she's been taking hormones and she's been living as a woman and now we're seeing the 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 backpedaling of the the country against her so good question let me i'll outline the timeline so miriam still has yet to receive any kind of surgery okay because she's sort of waiting for this final approval. Like for Miriam, that's her end game is is confirmation surgery. When she was younger in her 20s, she received hormone treatments. And so that's why she had developed some more female characteristics, including breasts from the hormones that she was taking. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So she starts binding because now it's far more dangerous for her and she's being forced to be kind of perceived and dress more masculine. So including the fact that she was kind of like forced to take testosterone. So she's presented and lived as a woman just non-surgically through hormones. So so yeah, that's kind of where those feminine characteristics come in. And when it's spotted by others is when she's assaulted and jailed. So now we're in 1983. And Miriam, through all of this, is like, you know what? All or nothing. I'm just going to walk right up to this guy. Like, 
what do, like what do we have straight to up that's the plan that's the plan exactly like i've waited all of this time she's 33 now so she's just like i'm gonna it's now or never so mm-hmm. i'm just gonna this is important to me i'm just gonna do it I, I need to find my answer so that's what she does she just walks right up to homeini's compound which is a brave choice considering <laughs> where we're at where our yep. backdrop is He's the highest religious and political leader in the country. And like I said, by many accounts, not like a fucking ray of sunshine, like not somebody you're just like going to grab a coffee with. Yeah. He was this pioneer for like oppressive religious fundamentalism. But Miriam's like, fuck it. Here we go. Mm -hmm. We're going to do it. And you know what? And I make jokes, but she is still a devout Muslim. And so this is important to her. So he is an important person to her. And so this, this is meaningful. So Mm -hmm. she marches straight up to his doorstep, like of his compound. She has her Quran in hand and shoes tied around her neck, which symbolizes that she's looking for refuge. So it's kind of like going in, waving a white flag. She's like, I'm not a threat. I'm looking for refuge. The symbol though, seemingly did not come across. Something went a little bit wrong because she was greeted by armed guards who beat her. And they only stopped at the direction of Khomeini's son when he heard Miriam screaming, I'm a woman, I'm a woman. Mm -hmm. So she was beaten in part because the guards suspected that her chest bindings were explosives. So they thought that she was like coming in armed to his, to the Ayatollah's. But even then, baby, you don't attack someone that has (laughs) explosives on their chest. Yeah. You're just like really start just beating like beating them shooting. and then what I was the plan so. there? Sorry, I don't it's not, not a, it's not a joke, but not like well, what is the No, it was not well thought out at all. Um you can't like Lord. beat a bomb off of someone, I'm pretty sure. No. But ever ever the kind of like badass to prove otherwise, because she was like, I'm a woman, leave me alone, I don't have explosives. So to prove otherwise. She just fully removes her bindings and exposes her bare breasts, mm-hmm. which, as you can imagine, is quite the no-no. Mm. But she's made an impression, to say the least. She she's coming is, in hot. She, yes, she has made an impression. So Khomeini's son, Ahmed, the one who stopped the attack, was kind of like taken aback. The impression sort of worked and was moved by her determination and listened to her story and her request to speak with his father. He finally he told her that she could finally sort of speak with the ayatollah and she fully fainted she was like this is no what way she's been waiting for waiting like this, like this could be the moment where she is completely validated in everything that mm-hmm. she's been waiting for from the moment that she was a child yes and not only that not that many people get facetime with this person to like sure one-on-one advocate for something so so important mm-hmm. so immediately before meeting him like she's kind of like walking through the hallway going to meet him miriam says quote i could hear homeini raising his voice he was blaming those around him asking how they could mistreat someone who had come for shelter he was saying this person is god's servant and so she also overheard him kind of talking to doctors in the room about like trying to maybe understand a little bit more about what miriam was about to come in and talk about And she says, from that moment on, everything changed for me. She like knew he was going to listen to her. So Miriam said that's exactly what happened. He listened to her story and ultimately released this fatwa, which is what she wanted. It stated, quote, in the name of the Almighty, inshallah, which is God willing, 
Sex reassignment, if advised by a reliable doctor, is permissible. I hope you are safe and those you have mentioned treat you well. So essentially, he's wow. like, go for it, kid. Like you know what? Like, you deserve stamp it. Stamp of approval. Yes. Yes. Wow. He's okay. like, and, and you have to think about this fatwa as a vessel from like an almighty. Like, mm-hmm. yes, it's from the Ayatollah, but it's really coming from something much greater than that and so this is like a direct communication with a Mm -hmm. spiritual being to say this is okay you can Mm -hmm. do this you are valid you're good and i hope this works out in the way that you need it to and so so miriam says it was behesht which is paradise the atmosphere the moment and the person were all paradise for me i had the feeling that from then on there would be this sort of light So she did it. She had the validation she needed. She was released from this moral conflict and she decides to pursue surgery, knowing that she sort of had this approval. In 1997, she received her long-awaited surgery and opened a trans resource center in Tehran while securing more accessible healthcare and education for trans people. She changed the narrative of trans issues and trans rights in Iran and for Muslim people globally. And There is still a fight for those with marginalized identities to exist and get the care they deserve in Iran and many other places across the world, including in America. But Miriam allowed trans issues to come to the forefront when they would have otherwise been shuttered. Though it is not the end of much-needed progress, Miriam ultimately did meet her goal of reconciling the religion that meant so much to her and ultimately who she was as a person. And that was and continues to be so impactful for many people struggling with their faith and their gender or sexual identities. Still, Iran remains a haven for those looking for confirmation surgeries. And as Robert Tate writes, quote, in contrast to almost everywhere else in the Muslim world, sex change operations are legal in Iran for anyone who can afford the minimum 2,000 pound cost and satisfy interviewers that they meet necessary psychological criteria. As a result, women who endured agonizing childhood and adolescence experiences as boys and young men who reached sexual maturity as girls are easy to find in Tehran. Iran has even become a magnet for patients from Eastern European and Arab countries seeking to change their genders. There are clinics open every day where young men and women gather in preparation for a new start on the opposite side of the gender divide. Many are desperate, seeing the operation as an escape from a confused sexual identity that has led to parental rejection and persecution by police and religious vigilantes. So this kind of like approval specific to trans identity and confirmation surgery may be due to the fact that those seeking surgeries are still operating within the binary system we've talked about frequently and that it doesn't disturb the values and morals assigned to women and men as long as people kind of choose one or the other so to speak so as long as they're still within the binary and then performing the gender roles of Mm -hmm. that specific gender, it's kind of like hunky-dory. That could be one of the reasons. And this means that progress is even more necessary for non-binary and genderqueer people worldwide. Though a place where many people seek surgery, homosexuality is still illegal in Iran with violent consequences for those found guilty. Miriam's story tells of courage and determination and is truly a motivator for the continued work being done in Iran for queer rights. So that's kind of Miriam's story. And 
it's certainly not, you know, the end note on, on queer activism and queer rights that need to be done, but it definitely tells a very specific story and I hope maybe a validating one for those looking to kind of reconcile their religion with their identity. It's so interesting because just like Wewa, both of these people are figures where like the work is just beginning, right? Like they were both able to be who they wanted to be and they were both monumental in their communities and the work is just starting, but we are able to do the work and we are able to see the work being done because of them and because of their actions Mm -hmm. and because everything they went through. Like she sounds so just like powerful she mm-hmm. she sounds it's just she's a badass right like every she yeah. did everything and had the perseverance and had the persistence and like she knew what she wanted she waited she got it mm-hmm. and was able to live and happily. like on her own nonetheless right. like right this was all fully just like one person and so like you were saying it's the beginning of the work but she really did demonstrate a persistence Mm-hmm. of one person that like yeah I can get you done and so like now the rest of us need to step it up mm-hmm. and try to get you done knowing that you know I'm saying that sitting comfortably in my apartment sure. in America that it's far easier for me to attempt to get things done and preserve my safety but I think this definitely shed light on a story that I certainly had never heard and I'm so grateful to have learned about Absolutely. She definitely was a pioneer for, you know, the permissibility of Muslim people to Mm -hmm. experience the gender confirmation surgeries. And I am also fascinated in the fact that Iran still serves as that kind of like hub. Right. Um, It's not, if you had asked me, I wouldn't have guessed. And I'm sure there's many reasons of my own like biases for Mm. that. And that's another reason why I'm grateful for Miriam and we was stories because I think I held maybe a lot of preconceived notions Mm -hmm. about what each of their stories could have told me. And both of them surprised me in very positive ways. Absolutely. Incredible. Yeah. This episode was, I think, one of the most learning one of the most that's not a sentence educational thank you Uh thank you for me (laughs) for me personally um and i will say too if you want to learn more about just the history of the iranian revolution i recommend the graphic novel persepolis it was written by someone who grew up kind of pre and post iranian revolution and it's fantastic It's one of my favorite books and it's a very easy read because there's pictures. Amazing. Yes. So to find out more, definitely check that out. Sweet. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Alrighty. And now that our stories are done, we have a listener story. (laughs) This, (laughs) we are very excited about this. We want to hear your story. So please send them in to historically really good friends at gmail.com. Write work like open, open, open submission. Just write what you want. Write about your experience. Don't make shit up, but write us a story. Write us how you want it to be read and we'll read it like this. So this comes from my really good friend Summer. Um, and I'll just I'll just read it. Why not? Okay. Growing up, it was never really a bad thing to be attracted to the same sex. It just also wasn't ever talked about in my family, so I didn't think much of it myself. Of course, looking back, there were some moments of that little girl is queer, like always volunteering to be the husband when my friends played house, but 
as a kid, I just thought it was quote unquote normal to want to play a man so I could hold girls' hands. That is until freshman year of my all-girls Catholic high school when I met Christine. If she's listening to this, hi. I had never (laughs) accepted in myself that I could have a crush on a girl until her. We were best friends and quickly. We liked the same music, liked the same shows, had similar ways of speaking, and I felt comfortable yet excited around her. We had many sleepovers, almost every Friday, in fact, where we'd watch the best show of all time, Skins, the UK version, (laughs) not the US one. The US one sucks. But I wasn't really ready to admit that I liked her like that until a good friend of mine asked me if I did. Long story short, that friend ended up forcing Christine and I to have a conversation, and then we dated for six months. I will always cherish my time with her, and we have remained pals ever since. I came out to my friends during that time, but it wasn't until I was 22 when I told my family in a Facebook post. I asked no one to talk to me about it and that they just read it and accept it and move on. So that's what they did. And it was perfect. And that's from Summer. So thank you, Summer, for sending in your story. Thank you. That was, I, I, I hope Jared leaves in some of my reactions. I giggled quite a few times. Um, Skins, you are absolutely correct. The UK version is the only version worth watching. Agreed. I think that that's, that was such a lovely story. Thank you so much for being our inaugural, inaugural, Mm -hmm. inaugural first listener story. I appreciate it so much. Thanks for tuning in to episode 14 of Historically Really Good Friends, where we talked about gender. This is your weekly reminder that acknowledging the queerness of our history makes having to meet Grover Cleveland even a little bit more fun. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. To see photos from this week's episode, make sure to check out our Instagram at Historically Really. You better do it. And make sure to send your personal stories to us at historicallyreallygoodfriends at gmail.com. You better do that too. We hope to see you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.